Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. I was reading that you were a big fan of the classical philosophers. Yes. Uh, I, I, I was... I was brought up by Jesuits, so I got the full kind of Latin and ancient history, uh, Lucretius and all of that. So, you know, I'm a secret Latin nerd as well. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, do, do you feel uh, that they still have relevance uh, in the context of some of these things like AI and machine learning? I mean, a huge amount. So I, I, um, I'm a big fan of the ancient Greeks and also some of the more modern philosophers like, like Nietzsche. But when, when we're talking about AI, there's actually two, two types of AI. One is uh, s called symbolic AI, and another is called subsymbolic AI. Right. And uh, if you think back to Socrates, Socrates is famous for creating the Socratic method, which is if Socrates is a man and all men are mortal, then you can infer from that that Socrates is mortal. Right. And, and so AI in the 70s and 80s was, was people building these rules, and then from those rules, infer new knowledge. Right. Like, so it was basically induction. In, induction, that's right. Yeah. And, and, but it didn't really scale. And so then what happens is a new type of AI came about called subsymbolic AI, or what were called neural networks, now called deep learning. And th this is instead of building rules, you, you build a model that you can train to understand patterns in the world. And, and actually, I would argue that, that many organizations are wanting to take deep learning neural networks and use them to solve their problems. And actually, those neural networks will face the same similar biases that humans do. So we are, we are really good at finding patterns. Right. We're actually not very good at making decisions. And if anybody's read the book, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, they'll realize actually we're terrible at making certain decisions. And so actually, I think that there's a, the, the, the true power of AI is combining sub-symbolic AI, finding patterns from the world, and then using symbolic AI to reason with those patterns. Right, in a way that's, that's auditable. I mean, actually, I mean, the ancients actually contemplated um, automatons. Actually, there's a story in a, lot of the, in a lot of the Greek mythology about, that, uh, about some of the issues from an ethical perspective that we're, we're also having the same discussions with now. In, indeed, what's really fascinating <laughs> for me is that philosophers for 2,000 years have been pontificating about what is the right decision to make in certain situations like the trolley problem. I've got a kid in front of me, I've got two adults to the left and, and to the right I've got a cliff and, and I'm in my driverless car, who do you kill? Right, and, uh, and, and that now pretty much applies to uh, crazy cars in Phoenix. You know? uh, absolutely, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, um, we're, so now we're actually having to agree as a society what, what the right decision is to make. And, uh, and build these ethics into these, these systems. And, and our, expecta our expectation is it's, we're going to take an agile approach. We're going to set what we expect to be the right answer and we're going to learn as we make mistakes, <laughs> as we kill things that we shouldn't be killing over time. Uh, I actually heard of an interesting story recently that maybe we will uh, have a, a situation where these car manufacturers will take a snapshot of your brain, your personality, and put that in the car so the car behaves how, as you would. Uh, in that situation. Wonderful, like digital road rage. Indeed. I'm having a cup of coffee in Soho Square with Dr. Daniel Hume, uh, who is the CEO and founder of Citalia. Uh, I've been a big fan uh, of your work for some time, uh, Daniel, so it's great to meet you in person. Thank you. And uh, Citalia, for those of you that aren't aware, um, it was one of the earliest organizations that was looking at how algorithms could really transform the way that companies and leaders work. Yeah. Uh, and you. Um, it's like the world has finally caught up with you. 
yeah, indeed, <laughs> this is one of the challenges of being uh, being early. Is that uh, some many of the ideas that we were developing 10, 12 years ago? It's only really now that people are starting to get excited about. And uh, uh, but yeah, I, I'm really glad that we've uh, we've we've reached this point, and, and I think that we're now regarded as one of the one of the pioneers in in this space. So, so one of the founding ideas at Citalia is this this idea that there are certain types of problems that are general enough across organizations that academics or people that are working on this in computer science that you can essentially leverage those as a as a toolkit you know for approaching specific in industry issues yeah most organizations have the same sorts of problems right a lot of them are trying to figure out how to stop customers from leaving how to sell more stuff to customers how to improve their operations to to drive efficiencies and also how to use technology to mobilize their workforce to come up with, with new innovations. So actually most organizations have the same challenges. They might, they might have different data and different cultures and structures, but they're, they're, they're tackling some of the same issues. So um, you can use similar algorithms, similar processes to, to solve some of these, these generic problems. Because you know, I'd, I'd always thought of algorithms previously as sort of a specific bespoke um, piece of code to a, a, for a specific business process. But what you're saying, it's almost more like functions in Excel. Yeah, so actually, all not many people know this, but all optimization problems in the world, and an optimization problem is where you have to allocate resources to something. So one might be, how do I allocate people to projects, or how do I allocate marketing marketing spend to um, to have the biggest yield, or how do I route vehicles? All of these problems are what are called optimization problems, and all optimization problems in the universe can be reduced down to the same format, the same mathematical. Um, representation uh, and, uh, uh, and and actually the mother of all optimization problems is called the SAT problem which is where Satalia gets its name. Right. It's called the Boolean satisfiability problem and not, not many people know but there's a there are seven um, millennium problems M maths problems that are set by Clay's Maths Institute in, in America and each one has a million dollars reward and one of these maths problems is um, is what is called the P versus MP problem, which is um, the, the question is: Is there a, an algorithm? Is there a fast algorithm that can solve what are considered to be hard problems? And and, and I, I can go into more details about this, but most optimization problems that exist in the world are exponentially difficult. They're right. really, really, really hard to solve. And so, so the solution to you know, uh, NVNP is actually worth a lot more than a million dollars, isn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely. It would change our understanding of the universe. We wouldn't, right. we wouldn't need mathematicians because we would be able to get computers to, to, to solve those, those maths proofs. It would, it would pretty much break every encryption protocol. Uh, that's exactly right. <laughs> and uh, that's exactly right. Nobody knows whether there is an algorithm that can solve that problem. Actually, I try to tackle that as part of my, my PhD. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so all, all optimization problems in the in the universe can be mapped to this this these um, uniform type of problems. And if you can, then it means you can utilize incredibly powerful algorithms that are sitting in academia to solve them instead right. of having to build your own algorithm, which probably won't be utilizing any of the interesting insights that that have been developed over the past decades. Is the hard bit the mapping? Because because I, I figure if it's just a plug and play of of corporate processes into these magic algorithms, then you know, you you pretty much could eliminate a lot of management. Yeah, that's right. So so one so it depends on the on the, the type of company. But Satalia, for example, has a delivery solution that, that is used to figure out how to drop packages to right. multiple so locations. Right. So DHL or exactly. Yodel. And, and most small organisations have a uniform problem, which if they've got some vans, they've got some shift patterns, and they've got some deliveries they need to make. As organisations get more complex, then there are specific features that might be associated with that company. Like for example, Tesco have this concept called click and collect. So you need to you need to maybe develop more specific 
specific features for those organizations but um, the, the general problem is what is called traveling salesman problem and that that there's an algorithm or a set of algorithms that are really good at solving that right and so what are the, some examples of other uh, sort of standard algorithmic problems that you know besides optimization so so well optimization is a, is a type of algorithm it's right. uh, you have an objective i i want to route my vehicles in the most efficient way uh, subject to some constraints which is i'm not allowed to visit the same point twice and things like that right. like so the bridges of Connorsburg. that's exactly right exactly so you would build an algorithm to try to solve that problem right. but there are other types of algorithms an algorithm is really just something that you give it an input and it gives you an output and mm. you give it the same input and it gives it the same you give you get the same output but an, an algorithm could be recognizing um, uh, i don't know chairs in a room. So if I take a picture, uh, I want an algorithm to say that's a chair with 90% probability. And so you give it an input, it gives you an output. Right. Um, so this is sort of pattern recognition algorithm. Yeah. And I would argue that there are two types really of algorithms that industry should be interested in. One is the finding the patterns from data. Hmm. Um, how do we extract insights like the sub-symbolic AI is very good at. And then the other is how do we then leverage those insights? And that's traditionally an optimization approach. And, and, and in terms of skills mapping, um, finding patterns in data is where statisticians really shine um, and, and probabilistic mathematicians. Making decisions and optimization are discrete mathematicians, are um, logicians, completely different set of skills. Right. And, and so would you say optimization problems then are symbolic? More like symbolic AI. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Does that mean machine learning isn't relevant? That's, well, machine learning is actually not, not very good at solving the traveling salesman problem or any, any allocation of resources problem. In fact, humans are terrible at this. We think that we're really good. Right. But if you give a human more than seven things to have to allocate to something, we're rubbish. Yeah, and, and, and actually this is where they think quantum computers could be really effective, right? Yeah, well, quantum computers won't solve ultimately the P versus MP problem, but it will make things, it will accelerate things a lot more quickly. But again, just to- Because you're just literally throwing more computation in yeah. parallel universes at it. That's basically. right, but just, just remember that these, these, these hard problems are exponential. So if, I, if I'm delivering to, let's say, 24 points on a map, um, as soon as I add an, another point to that map, it becomes the problem becomes 25 times more complex. Right. If I add another point to the map, it's now 26 times 25 times more complex. So it's exponentially. This is why they call them, is it NP hard? NP hard problems, that's exactly yes. right. Very good. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> you know, um, Wikipedia is a wonderful. <laughs> uh, you know, what, what, one of the things that I, we were chatting about before is how this ultimately starts to shape the kinds of roles and leadership. Uh, responsibilities in organizations and you know we were chatting about this uh, job posting that that you shared uh, from Tesco and mm. I think it was a um, it was a network analyst or something and, and mm. you know my first inclination was that this was someone who's gonna you know keep the switches running but it was it was actually a, a logistics network analyst yeah. and, and it was interesting because you know half their role looked like something that was a classic optimization algorithm but the other half was really challenging because it was trying to do the things that the machine essentially couldn't, you know, get its code around. Yeah, uh, and we're going to start to see this more and more. I think organizations are going to are realizing that machine learning only does one part of what they need to do, like find patterns. But if they really want to, to build automation into their organizations, they need to have people that are building optimization problems, once, once, solving optimization problems. And once you have um, that operating in your, in your company, then you need to use the humans to identify where the system gets things wrong. Right. to improve the system. So it's exceptions management. Indeed. And, and, and if, if we were to be really honest about our definitions of AI, I know there's a lot of definitions out there about AI, but um, I, um, uh, the best definition of intelligence I've ever found is goal-directed adaptive behavior. 
Goal directed in the sense we're trying to achieve an objective, we're trying to solve an optimization problem. Um, behavior is how quickly can I allocate my resources to, to move towards that goal. Uh, but if uh, the key word in this definition is adaptive. If your system is not adapting itself, if it's not learning from its mistakes, improving its own model, then I would argue that it's not AI. All it is is automation. And, right. I, and actually the best definition of stupidity that we have is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different answer. Right. So what we're gonna start to see more of are, are hopefully automated, automated systems, humans then looking at where those systems make mistakes, but eventually having the systems to identify their own mistakes and learn from them. So in that definition, really, something like robotic process automation could be the very definition of stupidity, yeah. you know, if it hasn't been correctly if calibrated. In, indeed. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's one step. Organizations are obviously um, are going on this digital transformation and they're realizing that machines can now solve problems better than, than humans for the most part. So they, they are starting to implement these things and seeing benefit. But I feel like the organizations that are really going to win are the organizations that can build systems that are adapted in milliseconds as opposed to months or years. So, so part of, I guess, the role of the, the human beings is, is spotting where the, you know, the, the algorithms are getting it wrong and managing exceptions. What are some of the other useful human activities where we can leverage our own, I guess, biocomputing stack? Yeah. So Effectively. Cre creativity is often held as, as being potentially the last thing that we can get a machine to do. And once we do get a machine to, to, to get creative, then, um, then who knows what's going to happen. Um, but uh, but get, getting humans to, we, we, one of the goals of an organization is to, is to inspire your employees and, and empower your talent to be able to come up with new ideas to then build technologies that drive value for that organization. And the coming up with new ideas is very, very hard. Steve Jobs said that um, innovation is creativity that ships. And, uh, and the process of getting people to come up with crazy ideas and getting them to the point where that organization is driving value is a very hard process, which requires culture, organizational processes, which, are, which I think will look very different to what they currently look. Right. And that's one of the things that we're doing in Satalia is that we, we are organizing ourselves in a very unique way to try and m make the most innovative organization that we can. Well, it, it, it kind of makes sense because if you're taking a very mechanistic approach to solving obviously known problems, then you want to be able to free your people up uh, to kind of take a much more open approach to looking for new opportunities Indeed. rather than just binding them to KPIs that are Indeed. essentially modeling the previous organization. Yeah, indeed. And I, I hate to, um, to reduce things to, to such simple concepts, but again, there's a lot of confusion about consciousness and sentience. And, and, and I think that um, people often ask me, when, when will we have a, a sentient machine? And we have a, we have a number of problems to solve uh, between now and then, and, and pr predominantly it is around the architecture yeah. of what that brain will look like. And, and I would argue that to, to create a machine that has creativity, you need to create an architecture that allows a machine to be able to have an internal model of the world. So to, to be essentially to have an imagination. Right. Um, that might sound a bit weird, but I think that we're, we're, we're now as a, as a set of researchers understanding more what that architecture looks like. But the idea is that you would create a, a facility to have an internal model of the world and play out scenarios in that model, which for me is one step towards creativity. And then one step towards sentience is understanding that that machine is an actor in that world and the decisions that it makes will affect itself. 
this is sort of Descartes, really, yeah, isn't it? Self-aware becomes you know, self-aware. But, but, but as, as you say, we, we, we still haven't figured out how to really fully define consciousness in ourselves, let alone build it in a machine. Yeah, you know? I think in ourselves it's obviously very, very complicated. But I mean, for a machine um, to be con- conscious or self-aware, I, I think it really is just having that architecture, so an internal model of the world, and to be able to understand itself as an actor in that world. And, and, and a big piece is missing from that, which is you know, one of the areas where humans bring a lot of values context. Yeah. Uh, like you can train a, uh, you can train an algorithm on a set of data, and and it kind of knows what a statistical concept of a cat is, mm. but it still doesn't know that cats like to fight with dogs, or yeah. you know it doesn't have a context for a cat. That's where the symbolic AI is, right? So right, because that's is, a set of rules. Yeah, and, 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 and as um, uh, we're growing as an infant, we're seeing cat, we're seeing dog, and then we see how they interact. We see cat fights dog, right? And so that's now a set of like Socrates as a man that's a set of rules that we can start to use to infer new knowledge about the world. So if, if, if the, the kind of the, the model of, of symbolic logic was Socrates, who is the model of probabilistic? Uh, uh, so I guess it would be Bayes. Right, uh, of Bayes. course. <laughs> yeah. I, I love the story of Bayes, although the argument there is that it was, it, it was uh, Laplace that, uh, yeah, no, it, <laughs> that actually made it useful. I'm sure that there were other people involved. But it's, so, it's, so, it's such a funny story, is it, about this kind of, that so, so much of our understanding of probability comes from this, uh, this vicar, basically. Uh, it, it, when was it, the 16th century? I, I can't remember. But yeah, yeah, but it's, 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 it's wonderful when you delve into kind of computer history, just yeah. the, the characters that are there. Indeed. But let, let's go back a little bit about the kind of goal-directed behavior and KPIs mm. and, and your own experiment, because... Uh, Aside from the the useful set of skills of human beings working uh, with algorithms, trying to get the most out of your people yeah. uh, to be more creative, to focus on exceptions, to find new opportunities, what's the kind of what do you think the emerging infrastructure for that looks like? So in, in Satalia, we have about eighty people, and, and we we don't have any KPIs, we don't have any managers, any hierarchies everybody is completely free to do whatever they want if you're an intern you can expense anything you want and how is that just not pure anarchy so so what we what <laughs> we do is we, we use machine learning to understand how people are connected across the organization and we understand who has the right expertise to be making certain decisions right. based on their their digital footprint and so we recently went through a, a scenario where everybody in the company made public recommendations for their own salary and then everybody then voted on whether those salaries should be reduced or increased or kept the same. And uh, the, if I was voting on somebody's salary, the weight of my vote, my decision-making power, is a function of how closely have I worked with them over the past year, and the second is how highly regarded I am as a strategic decision-maker. So how good am I at assessing the impact of this person's salary across the organization? Is your ranking as a strategic decision-maker a weighting based on all of your previous decisions or only the decisions related to salary related issues it's based in this case it was based on all previous decisions but actually we want to get more fine-grained about right. about identifying who are the right people to be making certain decisions and, right. and using peer-to-peer mechanisms and machine learning to make sure that they are the right people and they have the right consultation team to work with so you might trust daniel on salary calls but when it comes to picking indian restaurants for the absolutely. staff day you would downweight him significantly absolutely and the, the <laughs> reason why um, we have hierarchies in companies 
companies is because to, to move that information around, you needed to have to put managers in place to consolidate what was going on and then, and then move it around that hierarchy. So they, they, you know, the traditional organization is just like a static proxy for you know, a sense of what people are good at making certain decisions in certain situations. That's right. And then now what we're trying to do is, is figure out how do you decentralize and redistribute decision making across the, the organization and making those decisions also visible. Um, and, and so one of the outcomes of our, of our pay review was that some females were undervaluing themselves, which very often happens in industry, but then the rest of the organization said, no, you're worth more than that, you need to increase your salary. But that decision would have been hidden in a traditional organization if the salary wasn't transparent and if the manager was making the decision. Right. Um, so so it, it uncovers biases and, uh, and then it allows us to identify where do we think there are problems to them. Was it anonymous? So the, the voting was anonymous, but we encouraged everybody to say, if, if, if you want to share how you voted, then, then do that. But the reason why it wasn't, um, it wasn't uh, anonymous is because um, there's a very good uh, book by Dan Pink about how to motivate people. And he said there are three things that motivate people, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. He would, he would actually now split purpose into two parts, purpose being an every, having everyday impact and, and then a big purpose, which is your overall kind of what's the grand mission of your company. Uh, uh, but I, actually in Satalia, we think there's a fourth thing, uh, the fourth element, which is around um, safety. We want people to feel safe to be able to engage with each other as like a family, and and that comes back to attachment theory and and. Well, Google Google did that big project uh, Aristotle, Aristotle yeah. where they they found that. Um you know, safety was a key driver right. of the success of teams. Yeah, and, I, and, and we, so we think that safety is fundamental in creating a successful organization. And, and so we're looking at organizational psychology, attachment theory. Um, I, I don't know how many people, how many listen, listeners has, has therapists, but many of, many of them uh, will have learned about how their, their, um, their upbringing as an infant affects their relationship styles as an adult. And, uh, and how traumas um, during your early um, stages affect your, 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 who you are. And, and so we acknowledge that the majority of the population actually have attachment disorders. Uh, I think 60% apparently have attachment disorders and those people are in the world of work having power over the people making decisions. And we want to uh, help people understand where they're good, where they're bad and, and, and where they f and, and allow them to be self safe to be able to, to, to share how they feel. So is the idea that you would do this um, salary democracy annually or is it monthly or uh, what's the frequency? So we, at the moment we're doing it um, uh, annually and we're just about to do a, a new revised version. But actually my aspiration is to build a platform, to build a, 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 a piece of software, which again is gonna be using AI and machine learning that allows anybody from anywhere in the world to be able to contribute to a product and to be then remunerated for that contribution, right. even if it's just for 10 minutes. Which is a bit like what happens with SolveEngine now, your, yeah. your, your algorithmic platform. Yeah, in, in, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, at the moment, what we're seeing is people contributing to open source projects, developers, maybe even designers, and they get remunerated through QDOS. But I can imagine a, a future world, not too distant future, where we could create a platform that allows somebody to boot up an idea, to come up with a really cool idea, and then to, to, to have people from all around, around the globe to be able to contribute to that idea, to develop it whether you're a designer, a software engineer, uh, even uh, an accountant, to right. be able to contribute to all of the different business functions you need to drive that innovation forwards and to be fairly remunerated for it. And, and if we did create that world, I don't think that you need to have centralized companies. I don't think that you need to have a centralized company to have Google, to have Facebook, to have Uber. Um, if you look at their platforms, they're not, you know, the, the actual interfaces and they're not 
massively sophisticated. You could have 400 people build out the, the Facebook interface. Well, and I know you've written about this as well, and I've thought about this. I mean, the extreme version is you have a totally decentralized organization running on blockchain, yes. you know, Ethereum, essentially, yes. smart contracts. But there are two things that I, I think stand in the way of that. One is it's very difficult to kind of fully capture the complexity of current and future situations in code. I mean, they, they things just never play out the way you expect. Yep. Um, and the second thing is, is, is how do you how do you develop culture when you when when you don't have that sense of shared purpose or even shared space? Yeah, that's a really great question. And so I, I think that um, if we were to build these types of platforms, we need to make sure that humanity is built into them. Imagine a world where everybody is essentially a gig worker. You could sit in your, your bedroom, right. and you could contribute to all of these different things around the world, but you're not actually sharing any human connections. So how could we enable people to come together and, and have beer and do all the things that you're meant to do as, as a human being? And so when building these platforms to run Satalia, we're thinking really carefully about the human For those element. analog qualities. That's right. I mean, I mean, in a sense, we all work for Facebook. We're just getting paid $7 <laughs> a, a month or whatever our advertising eyeballs are worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, indeed, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, to <laughs> to, to resist looking at Facebook, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so, so let's let's talk a little bit about, I guess, um, you know, we've spoken about the kind of the new skills required and how these things come together. I could see how this works in a in a, you know, you have about seventy people, mm. but if you have seven hundred or seven thousand people. How do you scale up an algorithmic organization? What, what do you need to do there? So um, there are organizations that have been trying to tackle this. Gore-Tex is a, is a good example. They, they, reach, they reach about 150 people and then they break that off. And uh, there's this concept called the Dunbar number, which is yeah. about 150, which is how many stable connections we're meant to be able to maintain as a And this actually, human. I mean, I, I never understood how this works, but that mm. almost goes back down to the structure of our brains yeah. and you know the, the, how villages were formed. Yeah, well, they looked at, they looked at um, the brains of of, of smaller mammals and, and, and looked at how many stable connections they can make and then they extrapolated to human beings and said 150. Now, humans are slightly different to, to other animals, but, um, but if we look at, if we look at uh, kind of how the world works and, and the size of organizations, then 150 tends to be the number where, where you do have to start to break things up. I think when ING did their agile reorganization, they organized themselves into to, to squads and tribes. 150 was sort of the maximum. But, yeah, indeed. But yeah. I, so, I, you know, we, we, we have organizations now with 20,000, 200,000 people in them and, and they, they operate and my challenge is how do I take the system that we're building in Satalia and allow it to, to scale and and it might be that we end up having to, to decentralize in terms of groups of 150. One of the things that Satalia is doing is creating subsidiaries and, and driving pro products forwards in those subsidiaries that I won't bore you with but we acknowledge that there's a scale of, of number of people that you can kind of maintain in your mind and we'll be building that into our, into our platform. So creativity is a big part of this, but you know, when when you look at the decisions that a leader in a twenty first century organization needs to make, what are the ones that you think we should be spending our time and efforts on, and what are the types of decisions that essentially should be automated? Um, so, so one is um, how do I think leadership should be uh, yeah. currently, and then what what maybe problems we should be thinking about tackling. Yeah. Uh, so the the first is that. 
generally, there are, I think there are two types of leadership. There's the there's what would be regarded as the heroic heroic chess master, the person that decides where to move the pieces and that's in control over um, uh, that has the the, the global the fat view. controller from Thomas and In Indeed, and the, <laughs> the, the second is what what is often called as the humble gardener, the the, the creating the nutrients and the space to allow things to grow. And, and, and I would argue that being a humble gardener, whilst it's a little bit slower, um, is, is potentially the more humane um, uh, approach to leadership. And I suspect that there's some blend between the two, but uh, certainly in Satalia, we, we have had nobody ever in 10 years tell somebody else what to do. Everybody has been self-motivated. We give people information, give them nutrients, and they figure out how to allocate themselves in a way that benefits them and benefits the organization. And that's working very well. How it, how it will scale is, is another question, but I'm interested in bringing these two types of leadership together. In terms of what, where should, should we be applying our attention, this isn't new, but I think that we should be, it's really, I feel frustrated that the world, not everybody in the world has equal opportunity to contribute. And, uh, and I think this is a well-regarded uh, uh, idea, but if we, can, if we can give free nutrition, healthcare, uh, um, uh, shelter and education to everybody, then we all have the same playing field to then do what we want from. And one of my goals is to try to contribute to the world in a way that allows all of those four things to be a commodity, so to give access to everybody in the world for those, those four things. Because, um, because I don't think it's quite fair that, that there's an accumulation of wealth and power in, uh, amongst a small number and that, that there are other people in the world that don't have those opportunities. What, what is the educational base that you need to survive in an algorithmic world? Because it certainly isn't you know, learning and remembering facts. No, I think the classics is very, very important and, uh, huh. uh, and uh, understanding the components to what it means to be human. So understanding politics and economics and psychology and philosophy, and many of these things that we don't get educated in in, in, in school. Right, be because they give you the context you need to make the different ethical trade-offs. Indeed, absolutely. And I think most people will say our education system is broken and I think there's some hope that, that technology and, and, and philanthropy will help somehow change this. But um, I, I think I've benefited from learning about the classics. I wish I'd learned that, that, that at school yeah. as opposed to learning, learning facts. Why do you think they were able to come up with the insights they did back then? Is it just because they had literally thousands of years without Facebook and Instagram to distract them, <laughs> uh, but they could think in, in abstract terms, you know, a, a, about the interrelationship of objects and people and societies. Yeah, I think pe people's brain pathologies are, are not not all the same. Uh, this is going to sound a bit crazy, but um, uh, most people have a narrative in their head. Most people have uh, a, a voice that's saying stuff that's saying, do you think you should say this, Daniel, is it going to sound stupid, blah, blah, blah. Actually, some people, including myself, don't have a voice. My, my head is empty. And right. uh, I have to wait and stare at a wall for ideas to come out of the, the darkness. And uh, so I think people think differently. Uh, and, um, and, and, and by thinking differently, you have, you have people that come up with crazy, crazy ideas. Sorry, I'm, I'm just still stuck with the vision of you in the darkness waiting for a little printed piece of paper yeah, with the next yeah. thing for you to say it, on it. It's usually, it's usually sh shapes, and, uh, shapes that come out of this kind of darkness and then, then go out of my mouth and my, my arms. But I don't... Right. I but, don't but, you, but you don't have a narrative layer in between. No. That's no, really interesting. Yeah. Well, thank God we don't, we're don't. we running out of time. We don't need to go into the strange voice in my head. Daniel, it's, it's been wonderful having you on the show. I feel like we could talk for hours about this. Um, it's great to meet you. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much, too.
You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.